You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's podcast, this has been a guest that I've really been very excited to re-interview again. I think the last time I interviewed this particular architect was nearly two years ago, just before COVID broke out. But I wanted to extend a very warm welcome to Renato Torre from Renato Torre Architects and please forgive me those of you with Italian descent as to the pronunciation of that. Welcome Renato. Thank you Elizabeth but your pronunciation is um, nine out of ten. <laughs> I appreciate that. Renato just before we get started around some of your most beautiful buildings and in particular why you designed in brick I wondered whether you could tell me a little bit about your childhood and growing up, what it was like. Oh, well, that's my favourite uh, subject because, well, my childhood is the very happiest because I was born in Italy in the mountains of Abruzzo, which is pristine forests and alpine mountains and in a little village. So we're allowed to roam like kind of organic chickens, no, no boundaries. So we used to spend our time climbing trees, picking plums, shoving them down our shirt, coming home with them or or swimming in creeks, or just accompanying my mother, because in an agrarian society, it was, you know, if they, what they produced, they made a living out of that. So yep. it was, you know, it was pretty hard. But so my mother would take me to the fields. And I remember as a kid, baby, probably still in my cot, just observing clouds. So I think those periods, being in the countryside, no distractions, were still kind of formed a really visual world in my head, climbing trees, getting a different perspective, climbing rocks, discovering nests. I mean, my favourite pastime was searching for nests in bushes, picking raspberries. That's the kind of environment I was um, fortunate to be born into. And did you have siblings? Well, at that stage, we had three other siblings. Okay. And then we had three more when my parents migrated to Australia. Okay. So, but I was the youngest then, because mm-hmm. um, I'm in the middle. So... I really spent a lot of time on my own because, you know, my other siblings were two sisters and a brother. My other brother was a bit wild. So I kind of spent a lot of time on my own just exploring the countryside. I mean, we used to even make TV sets out of mud. And so you'd make a square mud box and you'd put a comic (laughs) and that was your TV. Or we'd make our own. Now, this is interesting. We had a fellow in, in the town who invented the scooter. We didn't know that at the time, but he'd make a platform with a T-bar mm-hmm. on rollerballs. And that was the scooter that, that was in the 60s. Yeah. And then was just recently that these became popular. So that's my childhood in a small town, animals, donkeys, riding horses. So you can't ask for a better childhood. I'm very free. Mm. So what prompted the move to Australia and how old were you when that happened? Well, my father, obviously in the 60s, Italy was struggling, especially in small towns. My father migrated to Australia on his own for five years. Wow. He travelled the country towns of Australia, Perth, didn't like Perth, didn't like Adelaide thought he'd stay in Melbourne, but before he settled in Melbourne, he went to Sydney. He liked Sydney and he worked in several jobs, but he thought he 
would go back to Italy. Didn't, Australia didn't really suit his character. Okay. He's a bit of a well. He's the type of guy who'd sleep in Hyde Park to save some money. Oh. And and the police would approach him and think he's a homeless, but he wasn't. He was just saving money. So they'd put him in a cell overnight. Ah. But that was you know Australia in the sixties. Okay. But he was a hardworking guy. But he wasn't he wasn't afraid. So Australia didn't really suit his character. So but then when he went back to Italy, four kids, he wasn't really keen to work in galleries because Italy was going through a boom of building galleries. Okay. He went to Belgium and didn't like working in the coal mines. Okay. So he thought, let's go back to Australia. So he brought the whole family over. And so you were alone with your mother for five years? That's right. When my father with came four back. children. Yeah, my father came back. I didn't recognise him. Yeah. You know, he was a stranger. Do you know, I remember Christmas as being, well, my father was avarice, so he wouldn't give us Christmas presents. My mother did. So for five years, six years, we were given Christmas presents. So, I mean, these are things that pop up in his memory. But, but so, yes, my mother was a very generous, loving mother. So you're, how old are you by the time you get to Australia? I was then? seven. I was seven? Seven years. So, okay. you know, remember my first days at you know, school, very hard. But the teachers had, I don't know, I must have had something that teachers would gravitate and make sure that I was fine and looked when, after. When you say it was hard, what sort of is in your memory about the hardest things? Well, when we went to school in Italy, you'd just be there from 8 to 12, okay. no lunch. Here, it would be 9 to 3. It was long days. Yeah. And my mother had to make lunch. What do you do for lunch? We didn't know. So my mother would cut some you know, loaf of bread, <laughs> wrap it in newspaper. This, this is in the 60s. So let's, you know, yeah. we're just migrants. We're not. So she'd cut a loaf of bread and just send it with me to school. Mm. And then first time I'd open my sandwich, I'd be embarrassed because all my little colleagues had little diamond cut sandwiches with multicolored, you know, hundreds and thousands. Oh, wow. Nutritious. And I'd have this Vienna bread. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the first time my mother gave us some money for, for lunch, I brought a pie. Right. Because that's all my, my friends were eating. And it was scorching hot and it just spilled all over me. So, so I was kind of not – I was struggling. Yeah. Struggling. And then as you went on with your with your schooling life, did sort of the idea of becoming an architect, was that a theme – how did that come to you? I think it was much later in high school where I think I had a love of drawing. And it wasn't architecture then, it was just drawing. So we did, in those days, technical drawings because I just loved drawings. And I remember finding a, a sketch of drawing on, a, on the ground one day and I picked it up and thought, wow, it's like a little, I studied that little drawing. It's a simple object, but there's a drawing. So I think it was the, the love of drawing that I started considering architecture but architecture was probably number three okay I, I, I wanted to be a pilot but I didn't think there was many well I did try and go to a pilot school but it was about ten thousand dollars for six months and right. my parents didn't have that sort of money but I'm sure there was other avenues to doing it then but that was first attempt and failed uh, not failed but just couldn't afford the money so I think we looked at architecture as a second or even you know, at that stage, even building, uh, yes. being a builder. And then just uh, this will be the last question I ask you on the childhood, but coming from an environment where you were so free and there was so much countryside, how did you settle here in, in Sydney? Like what sort of oh, place yeah, did you That's have? interesting because, again, when we did come to Australia, we lived in Mascot. And if you remember the movie The Castle, yes, 
uh, we were under the flypath and my father would cut down trees and dig a big hole and it hit water level, three metres deep, cut the tree, throw petrol and burn it and he'd have plumes of smoke going up and aeroplanes going through these this plumes. But that was a wild, you know, wild 60s. Yeah. There was no rules. So you could build, you could burn, you know, fire, you could cut trees. We had this huge tree. It was just covered the whole backyard. Yeah. My father didn't like because he couldn't grow vegetables. So he cut it single-handedly. So, so but, but then, uh, again, my parents really didn't control us kids in Sydney. Okay. We, I had a bike and I'd ride the bike all around the place. Right. So you couldn't keep me at home. Okay. <laughs> so I'd explore railway tracks and stations. and During that time, with the change of scenery, literally, what was your appreciation for space? Look, I was seven years old, but obviously, fortunately, we had a big backyard. Okay. So that was a great place to explore and spend most of your time. But at seven years old, I don't think you adjust pretty quickly. Mm. You know? But my, my older sister and brothers had really struggled, especially at school. Right. I didn't struggle at school because you pick up the language quickly. I was fair, blonde. Adorable. All of those things. Well, you know, but it does make a difference because my brother was dark, you know, olive skinned. And he had to fight his way through school. Again, let me remind you, we're in the 60s. 60s. I get it, I get it. So, Renato, you're thinking about becoming a pilot. You're looking at building. Mm. How did you get to architecture? Oh, I, I guess the love of drawing really was strong. And I got into the University of New South Wales. So, fortunately, I got in and yeah. that just sealed my fate. And did you enjoy, I mean, I'm, I'm always curious. But I, 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 didn't, I didn't stay at the University of New South Wales. No. I quickly switched because I didn't like the full time. I wanted to earn money because parents didn't have it. And, and also you, you wanted to learn the craft while you're studying. And I think it worked really well. Mm-hmm. And that was the Institute of Technology. Yes. Yeah. And it was regarded as a good school, yep. but not in design, but more in technical. I'm just curious because I always find it fascinating as to what people think university or learning about their profession is going to be like and then actually experiencing it. Did that was that on par for you or in retrospect maybe the Institute of Technology was a little bit more disciplined than say the University of New South Wales. But I really didn't enjoy my time at, at UTS. Mm-hmm. It was but I kind of stuck to it because I kind of liked the working in a good, respectable office. I was working at Harry Silas at the time. Yes. So that really gave you the balance of a really disciplined, professional, international office that really gave you a good sort of grounding of what architecture is about because you had international guests popping in. It was a beautiful space, you know, overlooking um, the harbour and Luna Park and it was a beautiful space. So I think that's what kept me studying architecture because if it wasn't for working at Harry's, I think university would have been a little bit boring. The lectures were not so erudite. Uh, I failed most of the design uh, assignments because I wouldn't settle into going into mass production until I had the strong concept. So I'd present concepts, sketches, very fluid, very nice, and that's what got me through. Yes. But I was always reprimanded for not putting up 20 drawings, title blocks and north points and all this sort of stuff. And so I struggled with that because I always understood that architecture was more on concepts. Yes. You know, concepts, concepts, concepts. And I wouldn't settle down until I was happy to present concepts that were gave me the drive to. So that was my experience in architecture. And architecture is really it's self-taught. It's an, you know, it's autodidactic. You teach yourself. Yes. You go there to teach. The tutors don't tell you how to draw or design. So it's a kind of a fill-in 
couple of days a week. And but it's outside of university that you really did follow your own heart and your own learning. And how did you come about with the role with Harry Seidler? Because we've had a couple of architects that started with him also, and I just wondered how that came about. The reason I worked for Harry because I used to work for this small office across in Lavender Bay, and I could see his office. And, I, and I'd be drawing and I'd be looking at this office and that's the place I want to work. So I approached him and there was no position available, but I approached him and we had an interview and he took me on, even though there was not much work. At that stage, there was just two other small colleagues, three associates. And But I think the first day I remember him taking you down to the car park and showing you the details in the concrete and the off-form concrete and you know the beautiful sculpted beams and and that made you feel very kind of welcomed uh, into a profession that you really uh, loved. Yes. Um, so I found it very pleasant to work with. Mm-hmm. But my first day there was the f- most frightening day because he was on the phone yelling, swearing to a journalist. And he slammed the phone. He said, who gave those photos to that journalist? Because they cropped the image. Okay. You don't crop Harry's images. Okay. And I, we were all just you know, so scared because he was in a few angry, angry but that was my first day that I saw his anger. Yes. Uh, that you could see his strict, disciplined approach to architecture, and that's his way or the highway. But no, but it was a very pleasant, all the colleagues were fun. It was a pleasant office. It was an inspiring office. The projects were good as he picked up work. And it was just that I used to say to myself, you know, if I do leave Harry's, I don't think I'd work anywhere else, which was not true. But that's really, that's how wonderful the environment was. Lovely. It was a special environment. And then you did head off back overseas again. How did well, that? Well, no, it's oh. while I was working at Harry's. Yes, I, I thought let me. I wasn't really enjoying UTS, so I thought I need a year off. All right. And I, I asked Harry. I said, "Yes, take a year off." Not that I'd said I'd come back and work for him. He said, "I'm going to Italy. I want to work for a few offices in Italy." He gave me the he gave me a reference to go to Pierre Luigi Nervi's office, and that obviously opened the door, and I got a job at. Uh, Pierre Luigi Nervi's office, which if listeners may not know, he was an engineer, um, architect, engineer, who his work was integral, structure, architecture was one. And so being in that office was, again, another stimulus, being next to the shadows of a master where his drawings and sketches and his you know collaborators were all fascinating characters, but real characters that really made you laugh. And they weren't serious, but they were very talented. And I remember one drawing that just knocked me out. It was a it was a beautiful drawing of a Pilotti of the Australian Embassy. It was a beautiful fan structure and it was drawn manually because every piece of timber was tapered and it was the most beautiful drawing. And these were skilled draftsmen that were just working for Pierre Luigi Nervi for years. So you're in this kind of environment and you were pinching yourself. So I think that were the highlights of my career. Because when you're young, you're really wide, what is it, wide-eyed, bushy to You want to absorb everything. You're just, you're just absorbing yeah. it. And these characters just consolidated your love of, and at that stage it was purely drawing. Well, you know, architecture, okay. I mean, designing obviously was, yeah. but just your love of drawing was really what made you pursue this career. And when you were in Italy, what sort of, what did you take from that time as opposed to, I mean, were there some real stark differences between the thinking from Italy oh, and yes, Australia? Yes, what yes. would you say they were? Well, the working environment was completely different where in Sydney was heads down, look like you're working. Italy was heads up, 
talk, discuss, work, go for a coffee, come back, fraternize, discuss architecture. And I remember I was Pierluigi's Neri's son, Mario, took over the business and he'd have this habit of, well, no, he'd, not a habit, but he'd occasionally once a week call in everyone to his office and start discussion of anything, any object, any subject that the staff wanted to. And there were two colleagues of mine who were tutors at the um, university in Rome. And during this conversation, he stopped and looked at me and said, Renato, I bet Harry doesn't do this in Sydney. <laughs> uh, and so come come 10 o'clock, we'd go down, walk down the Spanish steps, go to Cafe Greco, very famous coffee mm-hmm. or even other coffee shops that were not so famous, have a coffee, come back, walk up the Spanish steps, go down to this beautiful office. And that was, that was look, again, it was the highlight of I think everything went downhill after that. No. Really? <laughs> well, so, it was just in Rome. And yeah. The colleagues would take you and they knew Rome like the back of their hand and they'd show you, you know, the architecture of Rome. Mm. That's just every step. There's a, you know, everything. There's a story. Mm. So that was a year of uh, working in Rome. So it was only a year? Yes. Okay. And then. Well, I had to come back. Yes. Okay. I had to face the music. Okay. So you're back now. <laughs> you're facing the music. I'm facing music. And probably and was, bad coffee and as well. Three, yeah, well, there wasn't coffee then. No. no. There was, but they were just in the infancy. But I remember I was three weeks late because I took a little tour, uh, <laughs> you know, Europe before coming back. And I was late in enrolling and my the tutor at the time, I won't mention his name, said, you're three weeks late. You've got an assignment. You better get stuck into it. I thought, here's an opportunity to find out what my year in Rome was all about. Yes. And that just didn't come into the equation. And so we had to get into uh, designing a dollhouse. Oh, a dollhouse <laughs> or a doghouse. Dollhouse. Doll. For the you know, first kind of you know, third semester or fourth, I think that was fourth year. And so I had three more years to go through. And so it wasn't very erudite. It, wasn't, it, was, a very str- it was like a military school. It, was, okay. it wasn't kind of. But then again, my objective was get do it. Yes. You know, and get out of here. Get out of there. And so did you go back to work for Harry? Yes, I did. Okay. Uh, and I did, yes. So I stayed there for another year. Yes. And that was just to see the construction of Grosvenor Place. Oh, yeah. Oh, but sorry. Just my memory is fading. But I went, yes, I did go back to Harry's. But then two years after, he sent me to Sardinia. Yes. Because, you know, they needed the granite for Grosvenor Place. And the project architect, a really nice, very, very nice project architect, I think his name was George Henderson. He put me forward, being bilingual. He said yeah. to be there and to monitor the, you know, manufacturing of the granite panels. And I, I of course, you know, didn't hesitate. But it took a year after he first mentioned it. I was thinking, when are we going? And yeah, yeah. And suddenly he said, "Have you got your passport ready?" <laughs> you know? So that was in January, you know, 1984. We flew to Sardinia. And my colleagues at Harry's were saying, why do you want to go to an island? Well, it just revealed their ignorance because yeah. I knew what it was all about. And so they found a, an apartment for me in Porto Cervo. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you, you know, Porto Cervo again is in the Emerald Coast of Sardinia. Yes. Just, you could almost see Corsica. And it was just the most, again, the second highlight, you know, Rome and yeah. Sardinia. And thanks to Harry Seidler, this was working through an esteemed office that allowed you to do this. Mm. So a year into it was again another one. Another getting on a plane and 
taking the granite samples to the university in Cagliari to get them tested. And But the tolerance of the granite was also, for the Italians, too specific, one plus one, one or two plus millimetres, either way, plus or negative. Right. And the machines weren't that, you know, sophisticated then. So a lot of panels were leaving Italy, even despite me putting my cross on it, going on the ship and being rejected in Sydney. And they knew it wasn't my fault because they'd see the crosses. So they had to send the Australian contingent to fix things up. And so anyway, after they came and they resolved that two, two millimetres plus or one plus or two millimetres wasn't, was too fine. So tolerance were broadened. So my job was really to go to the factory um, occasionally, but I'd be spending time travelling around Sardinia. Ah. And, and obviously there was a job to do, and that was to report the shipment. Yes. The anticipated shipment arrivals, and that gave the Australian construction builders a head start on if the shipments were on time of night. But So it was a pretty enjoyable time, I must and say. Do you walk past that? area now with fondness in, in Grace. Of course I do. I, yeah. I, you know, you look at those panels and the man who, because there were curved panels. Yes. Uh, and I got to know these wonderful, you know, Sardinians who are very shy, introverted, mm. but lovely people working eight hours shaping these granite panels into mm. curved. And so you, I got to know the team and they were just wonderful. Mm. So I think this this is, and, and Sardinia's, you know, beautiful country as far as architecture yes we talk we're here talking about bricks but Sardin is about granite yes and and granite boulders of the Nuragi, which is prehistoric uh, conical structures and I spent time on my Vesper driving and, and inspecting these beautiful mm. you could walk in and still see the kind of alcove where they'd sleep and the threshold is just magical moments mm. you know, so Mediterranean. You- you were only there, so that was another year, was, and then you that come was in back. Four, so came right. back in eighty five. Yeah, that was my last year at Harry's. Okay, my last year at university, and I think I tried a few more architects, didn't work. Yeah, and I went on my own. Okay. Uh, my first commission in nineteen ninety, and that was was that a house? It was South Kuji House. Yes, and that was quite um, a daunting task because it's a beautiful site on the edge of the coast of Sydney, mm-hmm. beautiful rock formation just overlooking the Pacific Ocean and that was my first solar project and it was concrete and bricks. And did you, I'm again just curious, was that a time where you were feeling like nervous about going out by, on your own or did you see just no. that was the way? Uh, no, I wasn't nervous because the opportunity for a site like that was very unique Yeah, and having had enough of working in offices where I really didn't really like the way the offices were run. Again, the comparison Italy and Sydney were two very different. Where Italy was about discussion, connecting, talking, yeah. discussing architecture. Where Sydney was, you know, pretend to work <laughs> and I could go on and on and on, and, but it's not the time to talk about that. So it wasn't really, and I thought, you know, if I ever leave, I'd have to run an office the way I think I'd like to have an mm. office. But for a long time, I had no staff. It's solo. <laughs> so it was just lonely times kind of bringing this first project to fruition. And it was a long process. But it was the way architects should be practiced. Slow and steady and a good client and a good site produced a project that I still think is really relevant today more so now than before. Mm-hmm. You know, I explored 
you know, brick growing vaults, concrete, and brick towers, cutting bricks into half their size to mimic a kind of a square tile rather than a long brick because it was a curved turret. Mm. So then, and in certain elements, we kind of put this square brick cut in half into a diamond shape, yes. perforated, so you had perforated. So it was a whole wonderful experience of doing what you wanted to do in architecture yep. that you didn't get to do. And so the first project was like you're let out mm-hmm. and you, you've got so many ideas that you put them all in one project. <laughs> But still restraint. Yes. But still restraint. And it's still a very one of my best projects because it was the way it was done. Yeah. And Renato, what I mean, I want to talk about GB House and a few others, but but why brick for you? Why do you like designing in brick? Well, I need to go back because when you're studying architecture, materiality isn't really as a young architect, you kind of pick up you grow. And first you're struggling with form and then comes materiality. So materiality started emerging as something that's integral to architecture when I was in Rome Mm. and having um, lived in Sardinia. So materiality was all around you and it was bold and timeless and very massive. And that really appealed to me because you could just see the passage of time. Mm. And so that was the first house was an exercise in understanding materiality that gave the expression to the house. So I think Rome and Sardinia really started revealing material, timeless materials. Mm. So we're talking granite, stone and brick. And brick is the dominant material in Rome. And, you know, all I have to talk about is a pantheon in Rome and understand that the beautiful brickwork. And when I say beautiful brickwork, they are the kind of English brick walls where they're perfect. Mm. They're rough and ready, but through their thick mortar and their thin tile, and they just had to do what they did. It wasn't Mm. about creating the most perfect walls, and that's where their beauty was, Mm. in their kind of rough and ready sort of... And and the Romans weren't too concerned about perfection of the brick wall, but the massiveness and the structure. and So that's what really became evident. So materiality started creeping in and when I was working on my own and thinking about materiality. And so, so you switch from form to materiality is your real focus because you've dealt with form, not mm. that you've finished with form, but materiality really started coming to the surface. And so brick was something there that was imprinted in my mind just living in Rome. Yeah. Even the architect, the form, the barrel vault, the groin mm. vault came into the architecture in the 1990s. Not today, where you can't find a house without an arch. Now, <laughs> I was, you know, I was exploring that in the 1990s. Arches have certainly, made and they it. weren't, and wasn't well received. My first house, by the way, by the architect fraternity. Okay. So I was, I was jobless for ten years. You were a pre-trend setter. You said that, <laughs> <laughs> Renato. If we can go to probably, I mean. GB House only because it won one of our awards and I think the story behind it is quite fascinating because what again you did with the brick is quite unique could you just talk to us a little bit how that came came about that was that was an interesting project and again it was such a beautiful site and the client went through several interviewing several architects and it was went for about three months and it was you're beginning to wonder if we're ever going to (laughs) be told who got the job and fortunately I did get the job and so and the client was a very receptive very very astute client and and I'm talking about 
the mother and father, but the, 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 the wife really drove this project. And so the brief was, I want an iconic house, iconic house, and concerned you because, you know, as I explained to uh, Lisa, I said, you don't set out to design an iconic house. They kind of become iconic. Yes, you know, in time. But she clarified what she meant. She said, look, I want, I want the house to really pay justice to this site that you know, they paid a, a, quite a lot of money. And so, so form, you know, form and materiality were hand in hand then. Mm. And so brick was emerging as the material. But if I go back, because I was visiting Italy in about 2009, eight, and it's in my hometown and, you know, what do you do when you're in a hometown? You drive around, you explore. And I came across this hay barn and it was this rectangular with a kind of curved corrugated roof. And it was just all sealed in perforated brick. And you didn't know where the door was. It was a hay barn. So obviously let's breathe. Mm-hmm. And that stuck in my mind. And I had a photograph of it. And um, But that I just kind of left it there in my memory. And so when it came to GB House, as the form took shape, there was an opportunity to start looking at, and this is in 2011, so exploring the double height space was an ideal opportunity to put a, a, a breathing membrane, and that was a perforated brick. Um, and the first thing that comes to mind was, you know, bezel blocks and you know, it's a bit too rough and not really quite right. And so this image of this very fine 10 millimetres by 10 millimetre perforated clay brick returned in my memory and so I thought this is the brick we want but it didn't happen overnight mm-hmm. because there was you know construction drawings and and allocating the part of the wall that had to be perforated and, and then the client would you know call and say Renato when when are we going to find out what what brick are we using and I said well Lisa you know if you put pressure on me it's going to be a Bessa block because that's all <laughs> that's available yeah. uh, I just we just need time to see to search where can we get this brick that looks like this and and I know Asia had a few bricks and, and we looked at Germany. Mm-hmm. Germany had a beautiful brick glazed, but it was a bit risky importing it. Yeah. Uh, it's expensive. So we were kind of all at the office and a rep from PGH walks in and we're all under a bit stress and we thought, no, you know, we, we, can't, we can't see anyone at the moment. But mm-hmm. when we found out he's from PGH, very nice gentleman, Malcolm, we invited him in and said, you might be the one that can get us out of trouble here. Mm-hmm. We have this issue. We need a brick. And we showed him the brick from Germany and it was glaze and beautiful perforation. And he said, well, you, you give me a drawing and I'll take it to the factory and, and I'll let you know if we could come on board with you. And just a few days later, they said, we'd love to bring this brick to life. So we designed the brick and we said we want one side glaze and one side clay and there was issues that we they had to go through and but they resolved all those issues and the, on the 11th hour production was happening and we showed the client the brick and there's the brick that we we uh, managed to use and because you didn't just use that brick I mean there was a couple of different bricks there yeah there was but then again we looked at just your typical perforated brick with just round holes, mm. but they just weren't refined. You wanted this almost like a sieve, a veil, yeah. um, and it wasn't just to filter lighting because it's a double height space. We had to be concerned about winter light, well, yes. even summer light, so it was harsh. So this was like a veil just filtering, moderating light into the double height space. And that's where the magic is because at a certain time, 
In winter, the light comes at about a 30 degree angle and it comes through those small perforations. But to kind of prolong the light, we actually left a gap. And so it was a stitch work, a patchwork of gaps, about 50 millimeters. And at a particular time of the year, those light patterns come in and create such wonderful patterns. And so, yes, we did look at a few bricks that were easy available on the market, but they weren't that quite refined mm. maybe for a small wall yes but not for a wrap around and it had to be glazed because that sun hits that glaze and it just glistens it's like the opera house you know that protective surface yes. it had to be a white glaze mm. and so look it all fell into place because you have a good client mm-hmm. who trusted you and didn't pressure you and we had the pgh rep coming in at the right time yeah. And we had a builder who was um, a bit slow. (laughs) So slow architecture put it all together. And if it wasn't for those ingredients, the result would not have been as successful. How how long did the building take to construct in the end? It it took about four years. um, But that's because he was a very skilled builder. Uh, And the reason why it came on budget, because other other tenders came in at two million over, it became spot on. Because he did everything himself. Wow. So he did the excavation. He did the formwork. He did the steelwork. He did the brickwork. Uh, he attempted to do everything else, but the clients were running out of patience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so they had to you know, get him to understand that outside contractors to come in and help you do the bathroom tiling. And, yep. But all credit to him, he, he built it single-handedly. And I think that's what's the success of that. I know you can't talk to a client about slow, Mm. but that four or five years of construction. And in that period, the client was also enthusiastic at making improvements. Yes. So through that came so many changes that you're allowed to review and you know revise and come back. And one of the most exciting changes, apart from the perforated brick, was we got light into the um, music room via a, a driveway. So we put this very heavy trafficable grill 1500 deep on the west side so that come around 11 o'clock when the sun hit that west elevation the sun will filter through down to the three you know two stories down into the earth and so the stone comes alive with sunlight and so now it's taking its own microclimate and we have ferns and greenery emerging out of it and, and water seeping through and that is what's made the house that real breathing organism it's not this hermetic house so many layers and that and that's just having time to arrest your thinking and having the time and a supportive client and a builder who was slow so you can actually make these changes and so and i think the success of gb house was through build a client and obviously time to and a client supporting the architect well it's um most beautiful design and we loved just the innovation of it as well as just how differently brick was used. I mean, it's it's lovely to see there's that, I guess, reference to other parts of the world and to a little bit of, of history, so to speak, but still in a contemporary way. Well, that's what architecture is about. It's mm. about accumulating the best of what civilization can give you. And going back to the breeze brick, it wasn't a tokenistic. It really mm. played a really function because it was... Within the, from the skin, the perforated breeze blocks, there was a 700 gap and then there was a glass. And so that had circulation of fresh air. And then there were louvers so you could moderate the coming. And so the house doesn't have air conditioning. So it played a vital role in moderating 
the temperature and allowing fresh air to circulate around within the exterior walls. So it worked many in many aspects the perforated brick wall. And I think it's so. But overall, it was the aesthetics that really sealed it too. That's right. But the function of the, the breathing of it, allowing fresh air around it, and moderating the light was second to it. But the, the beauty was in this glistening perforated brick. And I think it's so true, like everyone wants light, but then just glass is, is it then also brings up its own issues and how can you use, yes. you know, different. And, and, and so the other issue that was problematic was that this kind of veil of brickwork hiding the spectacular view was an issue that we had to deal with the client because the brickwork, the you know, bricklayers were complaining, said, this is crazy, got a million dollar view and you're putting a brick wall. Mm. But there was a concept behind that, that this was only at the arrival point. Yes. And it was to give a little bit of mystery and anticipation. I was going to say anticipation. anticipation. Yeah. And so that when you get to the ground floor, that's when it opens up because that's where you spend most of the time. Mm. But upstairs was this study and so you get to get glimpses and then there was a big, obviously nice bay window, big picture window that was obviously looking out to the east. So, but everything else was a mystery of filtering through so you could see the view, but just almost like a looking through a veil. And that's where the success is. So if we hadn't had that brick perforated wall, the mystery wouldn't have been there. Mm-hmm. So again, there's logic and there's a process of designing so that the objectives are there. And with the good clients that support you, you achieve that because mm-hmm. I, could, I could imagine another client who would have been very different would have said, Renato, I'm not having this brick wall on my $6 million view, that would have been a completely disaster. So, Well, we've loved it and we're looking forward to seeing a few more projects of brick coming up. Well, I hope this podcast might, you know, lure (laughs) the right client again. (laughs) Renato, we're going to move on to the um, rapid fire questions. Reading the news, a newspaper or online? Oh, I'd hate to say it, but I'm lazy and I'm online now. Handwriting or typing? Oh, handwriting. For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, pen or e-pen? No, definitely a felt pen. Do you like to read books or listen to audiobooks? No, read books. What's important to you, style or substance? Wow, that's a difficult question because Italian is all about style, but in good, in good design there's always style with substance. We haven't had that. That's a great answer. Coffee or tea? TV shows or movies? Neither, but I I lean to a movie. Antique or brand new? This is difficult because I kind of love the past and I love the future too. So I'd say I'd say foot in antique and (laughs) a foot in the modern. Call or text? Oh, call, call. Travel back in time or into the future? You can see that's going back to my love of the past I look in your search for form and guidance to design you you look into the past so so what was the question travel back in time I'd travel back in time okay to create the future oh I like that that's good traveling back in time to create the future exterior or interior these are kind of you can't have an you can say both you can't have an exterior without an interior yeah so you need an you need an exterior to have an interior. Video games or board games? No, neither. Form or function? Oh, again, that's another. It's interesting because one would quickly say 
you can't have form without function. But I'd I'd stick my neck out and say form is is priority. Mm. And if you've got the form, the function should follow. I like that. It's some real gems, Renato, here today. With relation to design, complex or simple? These questions are good because um, <laughs> these are the issues you're, you've confronted all the time. And so I would say simplicity. I love simplicity, but simplicity doesn't exclude complex. Mm. And to create simplicity, sometimes you've got to go through some complex issues. Mm. So simplicity. <laughs> Renato, I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much for oh, making the effort. Have we finished? We are. Oh, my goodness. It just flew. No, thank you. Very nice. It was more enjoyable than I'd imagined. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.